Welcome to Talking Bach, a podcast by Bach Academy Australia. My name is Madeline Easton and I am the Artistic Director of Bach Academy Australia. This brand new podcast series will accompany each of our concert series throughout the year. The topic of our upcoming season is the weapons of rhetoric. Now, throughout this podcast season, we will be chatting to three different but equally wonderful exponents of the arts of rhetoric. The idea behind this podcast season is to whet your appetite for the wonderful music of Bach you will hear, but to also really deepen and enrich your knowledge of the fantastic and fascinating subject of the weapons of rhetoric. My guest today is Julia Fredersdorf, the wonderful Australian violin player who some of you might know from the Van Diemen's Band, her fantastic Baroque ensemble based in Tasmania. Julia is one of Australia's most famous Baroque violin players and she will be joining me in the next concert series to perform the Bach Double Violin Concerto. We had the most wonderful hour chatting together about all things Bach and rhetoric, so please enjoy this next episode. It's wonderful to have you, Julia. Welcome. Good to be here, Madeline. You can't see her face, listeners, but I can. And I'm staring at the lovely smiley face of Julia right here <laughs> on what looks like a really lovely sunny day. Well, it is actually not a lovely sunny day. There's a break of sun right now, but it's actually been feral today. <laughs> I, that's why I've got my scarf and my gloves on because it's freezing. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. Feral. I love that yeah. word. We should use it for weather more often. I'm, I'm stealing that one. <laughs> Oh, well, look, it's it's so lovely to reconnect with you, Julia. And um, I just was reading actually a little bit before in your biography about um, who you studied with and where you went to study and what you've done. You know, you won't believe this, but we are both students of Lucinda Moon. Oh, I didn't know that, Maddie, actually. Yeah, um, she was an amazing uh, mentor for me uh, when I was first starting out Baroque violin. So, yeah, she's a beautiful teacher, really good person and beautiful player. So, mm. She really was. Um, yes, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I got into Baroque playing purely by accident. Um, and yes, I'll tell that story another time. But just watching Lucinda play and watching the grace and beauty of her playing, the way she balanced the violin so perfectly on her collarbone and the approach to the string, I just thought, wow, that is truly beautiful violin playing. Um, and it looks like part of her, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it, it does. And it's funny, you know, all these violinists I've seen overseas and heard, I still put her right up there amongst the very best worldwide. It's yeah, extraordinary. Stunning player. Absolutely stunning player. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Um, so you went to study in The Hague. I did actually. Um, the the reason that happened, it's a it was a convoluted process, but um, Lucinda was at the at the beginning of that because she passed me a CD that um, I just adored, which featured Enrico Gatti playing, and um, I just I at that moment when I heard his his sound and aesthetic, um, I was just. Uh, on a mission to find him to to learn from him and I'm I'm actually in hindsight I'm like I just made the assumption that he would teach violin and I was lucky that he actually did <laughs> um, and I originally I thought I, I was going to be going to Italy which sounded okay by me and I ended up in The Hague 
<laughs> which was unexpected, but, you know, it was such a fantastic department as well. Very big, uh, 160 students from all around the world in the early music department. Only two of them were Dutch when I was there as well. So really international. Um, and yeah, I just, I had the best time learning from Enrico. It was so brilliant. Yeah. Loved, I loved his uh, approach and he's still, for me, his right hand technique is the best in in the world. I just love it. He can really speak through his violin. So, well, yeah. speaking through music is what we are talking about today, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> those weapons that we all have to wield. Absolutely. Now, when you went overseas, did you always think you were going to be a Baroque violinist? And you know, when did you fall in love with Baroque as opposed to because none of us start on Baroque, do we? We start with yeah. Suzuki or Amy B or whatever. But how did <laughs> it end up being Baroque for you? Well, that's funny you should mention Suzuki. I was a Suzuki kid and um, my first, um, my the first time I was really affected by music was a piece by Vivaldi, the A minor concerto Largo, the second movement. And um, I got goosebumps. I was listening to my Suzuki tape and I got goosebumps. <laughs> and that was when I was like nine or so. And I thought, oh, wow, I really like that feeling. I'm going to listen to it again. And, and after that, I... Um, I I think I was in around year 11 or 12 at school and I heard a, a, an interpretation of Mozart with a forte piano and gut strings. And at that, at that point, I just latched onto that sound world. It was, to me, it was the language that I understood and felt that was, you know, the, the way I wanted to communicate through music. So, um, yeah, from that point, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I studied modern violin knowing that I was going to go on to Baroque violin but at that time um, the advice I was having from mentors was just finish your modern violin degree and then specialize. Mm. Mm. That's right um, so wow so it got you quite early on didn't it? It did <laughs> yeah I was um, I was always I never quite understood I appreciate but I never quite understood the high romantic repertoire it was never my voice so yes Look, it's so important to find your voice, isn't it? I mean, mm. there's that Indian word dharma, yes. um, which I heard when I read that absolutely amazing book by Jake Shetty called Think Like a Monk. <laughs> it's a, it's a just a, the most extraordinary book, actually. Um, yeah. It's, okay. yeah, it's incredible. Up. And he talks all about this word dharma, which is finding, number one, what you're good at, but number two, what your what makes your heart sing. Mm. And if you combine the two, you're on a winner. Totally. Yeah. Aren't we lucky to do this for a living? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, in your case, yes, definitely. Because you found your passion, you found your voice and you're good at it. You're exceptional at it. And, it, you know, it's wonderful that hey, we've got. Daddy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Um, but look, this podcast is called Talking Bach. So let's talk Bach. Mm. Now, what I'm interested in is What's been your journey with, with Bach specifically? And, you know, what impact has he had on you as a person and as a musician? Uh, well, I um, I guess the first time I played Bach would have been the double violin concerto. Funnily enough, that was wow. probably the first piece I learnt, I think. Um, or maybe apart from a few of the minuets that are um, in the Suzuki repertoire. But, um, yeah, I, I really... I remember playing that piece when I was uh, again at school and being really touched by that piece but um I 
I truly discovered Bach when I was living in Paris. Um, and I would go, when I was a student, I agreed to go to, there's a, um, a choir in Versailles at the Notre Dame de Versailles called the Maîtrise uh, de Versailles. And um, they, uh, they used to put on a cantata every month. And um, at that time in France, Bach cantatas were not very often played, actually. Um, in fact, Bach has only really started to be played in France recently, I, I think. It's, it was, it's a, a repertoire that wasn't as popular with the French. They loved Handel, but they just didn't play Bach as much. Um, and so the deal with this, uh, it was a children's choir, and the deal was with this was that uh, you would go to, to the church on the morning, rehearse the, the cantata, and then um, play it play one cantata in the afternoon, very much uh, in keeping with what Bach was doing when he was writing those cantatas. And I remember researching them. And uh, so each time uh, I, I would find out as much as I could about each cantata so that I could really appreciate it when, when you know, even in a small rehearsal window, um, when we came to playing it, I, I just wanted to get the most out of it because I was so fascinated by his, the, well, the craft of, of his cantata writing. And I remember sitting in my little 28 metre square flat in the centre of Paris. At one stage, I remember sitting in front of my computer thinking, this can't, this is not possible. This is just too <laughs> genius. It's genius. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> And I remember really being moved by that because it, it's there's, there, not only has he put so much of his heart and soul and whole being into the music, but he's also been exceedingly clever and hidden Lutheran hymns in the bass line and he's put all of these really interesting rhetorical affects in that you sort of revisit and think, whoa, how does he do that? Um, so it's it just suddenly really struck me how unparalleled his music is yeah um, no I agree I mean it's it's almost like there is this longing on every single level mind body and spirit with him to communicate his deep love of the subject matter and his his absolute determination yeah I think longing is in a way a good word to, to you know just to get across to the congregation what he wanted them to feel alongside him and he used every trick in the book every single device at his disposal to get there didn't he yeah and I guess it was his commitment as well to to God and his 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 way of communicating with God I think as well and 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 I and gosh his faith was so strong so yeah. so um yeah I that was for me that was a real turning point that's where for me there's there is no greater composer. Um, it's yeah, he, he's without peer, oh. and and you know that's throughout a very long period in in Western um, classical music. So um, yeah, I, I I will play back at any uh, any excuse. <laughs> well, you and yeah. I are one hundred percent in accordance there. Um, hundred percent in accordance. I beg your pardon, because yeah. I believe the same thing, and uh, I think really alongside you, I didn't really understand Bach and and just really get have any kind of concept of the depth of of you know wonderment that this man brought to our lives until I started playing the cantatas. Mm. I think those, if you can unlock the key of those cantatas, you really do know Bach. And you can Absolutely. appreciate him. Mm. And uh, it's great that you got involved with the cantatas because I, I know a lot of instrumental musicians never really do, you know. Um, so 
which is a, a terrible yeah. shame because they're yes they're extraordinary and they really exploit yeah. um every single instrument you know they he really explores the different colors and um he totally he just understands the ability of each instrument as well and um and then the combinations that he uses and um and then also just the the power of Actually, what I find really interesting is how he combines voice and instrument. And he seems to have a system with that. You know, he always puts um, tenors and sopranos with flutes and then mm. he tends to put the baritones with the oboe. And so it's a really interesting um, system he seemed to have as well as far as which voice suits which instrument. And Absolutely. And you know what? None of it was by accident. No, I'm absolutely yeah. sure of that. And, I, I, you know, I have read a little bit about his uh, sort of choice of instrument and the symbology behind that. And, again, every single choice was solely with the purpose of getting across his message. Mm. So, mm. you know, it was so specifically chosen for the maximum impact of persuasion. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's but extraordinary. That's amazing. Mm. Um, yeah, but, listen, um, we are performing Bach's double violin concerto and um, what are your thoughts on this particular piece in terms of rhetoric, which is what we are all about in this mm. particular episode? Well, that's a good question. Um, certainly the interplay between the instruments is obviously really important and uh, that conversational style of writing, um, which, you know, I, I guess when you think about rhetoric and oratory, um, there is so much order in that and and particularly back in the um, 17th century and 18th century or oratory was a real art form that was um that was trained where people were well trained and uh and and I think it was probably quite a dramatic thing as well uh much more than the sorts of speeches that we see now I think I think everything's very toned down in speech generally when you see people giving speeches they tend not to like to show their emotions too much whereas at, back there I think it was a much more kind of heart on sleeve um, form of communication but also then choosing the right words and the right um, tone of voice and all that kind of thing um, so I, I see I see this concerto as, as something along those lines where uh, again, nothing is by accident and the interplay between the instruments is is what he's really working with. Um, and I, I think that what makes it really interesting, particularly with the same instrument, is that you can hear the different voices within that. So two different players, will there'll be subtle differences, but I think actually that's okay and I think that's part of the appeal, having this, the same instrument. Absolutely. And the two parts are 100% equal, aren't they? I yeah. mean, you know, how many times have you had, oh, do I really have to play the second violin part? Can't I play the first violin part? And you're like, have you even looked at the score? I really <laughs> like, like the second violin part. Oh, the second violin part is fantastic. <laughs> it's so brilliant. I love both parts. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a problem playing either part, obviously. Yeah. But they really are true equals, aren't they? They're sparring partners. And mm. uh you know, technically, I've always found this quite a challenging concerto. It's not easy, even on modern with the shoulder rest and chin rest. Mm. But you take off those two things and you suddenly realise what a challenge it really is. Yeah, um, it's not, a, not an easy piece. Yeah, it's a real concerto. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just sort of thinking of those passages in the third movement, all those arpeggios that knock about the place. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's very, very, very tricky, some of it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I actually had the... 
good fortune to play this uh, a few about actually probably it might be close to 10 years ago now when I was um, running an academy down in Victoria and I invited Enrico my former teacher to come and teach and then we played this piece together which was really special um, so I have some really nice memories associated with this piece also as I said I played it at school I remember I played it in a school concert and that was a huge thing because I think it was one of the first time I ever did a concerto so um, yeah I have a lot of uh, uh, I guess a bit of sentimentality about this this concerto plus the fact that it's just so gorgeous. <laughs> but that that sentimentality is brilliant in a way because Using the sentiment in the piece is another weapon that we have in our arsenal, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I've been thinking so much over the last few weeks just in preparation for this concert series about the tools that we can use um, and, you know, sorry, the tools we can use but more in a sense of a toolbox, you know, of, of things that we can use in order to persuade the listener around to how we would like them to feel. And it sounds terribly sinister and manipulative, but it's not. It's about, uh, you know, bringing over this incredible feeling that Bach wanted everybody to hear in the music. And it's not just musical. It's, you know, if you think about all aspects of life, we're going, we're coming up to an election, aren't we? And maybe by the time this podcast airs, the election will be well and truly over. However, um, there are so many tools that we have at our disposal and sentimentality is one of them, you know. Absolutely. It's, and, and it's about, manip you know, about the emotions and sort of pulling the strings in order to create this wonderful effect that we choose and want to create. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what Gemignani wrote in The Art of Playing on the Violin is that we, the, the aim of a musician or a violinist is to move the senses. Um, so, uh, and I think they they would uh, really aim to have people swooning in, <laughs> in the audience. Um, yes. and, and I think actually people did let themselves be affected, affected much more um, as well. So, I, uh, yes, and when you say, it's interesting you mentioned the word tool because um, this is really that that actually was a thing in the German Baroque rhetoric. There's a there's actually a whole um, language of rhetorical devices that was literally written down with names in Latin. And so these again, this this is not by accident. A lot of these things were literally written down affects that were used to um, invoke a certain emotion. And so the the German um, audiences would have known about this and and been susceptible to it so it's actually much more um complex and planned than we even know now mm. or that we're even aware of yeah to be honest absolutely yeah yes well you know it's our mission to bring it back isn't it absolutely <laughs> and our privilege <laughs> our privilege absolutely yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're a violinist and I know you've played all of the wonderful, the other concertos of Bach that he wrote, the A minor, the E major, the triple, plus the sonatas and partitas. I mean, so this is quite a large question to ask, but what is your feeling or, or you know, of the way Bach uses the violin? And maybe we should include the cantatas in this as well, all those beautiful obligatos. How do you feel about playing Bach and what he's done and what he's given us as violinists? Uh, that's a really... Also, another interesting question. I um, have this theory about the the sonatas and partitas, and it's possibly not right, but I feel as though those pieces are not written for performance. Um, I feel that they're a very interior and personal composition. Um, and sure, yes, he may have... Um, 
they, they were, I guess, for domestic consumption. <laughs> but I mean, who, which domestic violins, violinists or amateur violinists would have been able to play them? They're so hard. <laughs> Yes, I can't believe are. I can't believe he could play them. That's just outrageous. I know. Um, I've often thought that actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because they are so the fugues in particular um, uh, are such an exercise in in exploitation of the instrument and uh, and showing how how brilliant he was at being able to turn a melodic instrument into a keyboard or a you know something that is playing many, many different parts. Um, but yeah, the, the, the manuscript says, um, je suis seul. I, mean, he, I don't know, I just, I think that in some ways it's, it's alone music for me. And I, I, I don't, I haven't performed much of it live, mainly because I just, it doesn't, doesn't sit right with me. <laughs> I don't know why. Wow. No, that's really, really interesting. Mm. You know what? I mean, he wrote those in 1720, which was the year that his first wife died, Maria know, Barbara Bach. Exactly. So maybe yeah. just we so he was alone. He suddenly found himself alone. Yes. With all those and children it, on his so own. There's so much pain in that music as well. I mean, the um, Chacon, that's a yeah. that's a world of that's a whole universe of of one human being's existence right there. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I understand what you're saying with that. And the concertos, yeah. the concertos are, are you know, obviously much more um in the style of a concerto, much more kind of out and communicative, and um, but even so, there's an intimacy to the music. So, for example, the A minor concerto, I find quite um, there's something very gentle and warm and unassuming about that piece. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, it's not it's not the same thing as an Italian concerto, which is very you know, look at me. <laughs> it's it's a much more complex. Um, aesthetic and uh so I so I, I see them as they're unusual in that way also the harpsichord concerto same thing they're they're somewhat intimate very intimate music and um complex music um yes. yeah so uh I, I I also played the triple violin concerto only a couple of years ago actually and that was um that's a similar thing, although I would say of all of the concertos, perhaps that the e, e, um, e major and that are the more extroverted ones. Also, yeah. I guess, the keys. Um, yes. Yeah, E major being very kind of open, um, bright key. Um, so yeah, I uh, I um, I think each of them is has a really different character, and uh, but every single one of them is. I mean, again, it's without floor there is there is no there's not a weak link at all in any of it it's just so beautiful everything you wrote so extraordinary there is not a duff note as I've often heard said <laughs> nope there is not there really is not yeah yep We're oh, so I completely agree we are, aren't we lucky? I know, gosh. So, Julia, that one of the things I'd really love to talk to you about before we uh, wrap up is the fact that you are an artistic director and founder of an ensemble, just like I am. And um, after all that time away in Europe, what's it's, what's it been like for you to return to Australia and get involved in the early music scene here um, as a performer and as an artistic director? Mm. Um, I've really loved coming back. Uh, I... Feel like I feel like we're a little, little bit lucky to have the opportunity to be starting our own group and to have that um, artistic autonomy 
um, being able to uh, choose what to play and who to play it with. It's um, the ultimate uh, luxury. Uh, also, I am really enjoying, um, particularly in Tassie, uh, the reception that it's getting. So we just feel so supported by our audiences. They are really, really hungry for, for this. And um, yeah, building building the audiences has been such a lovely journey for, for me. Also understanding what, you know, what, what they take away from it and um, what, what they want to listen to. And then, you know, I often sort of with my programming, I try to make it have something that that they can sort of that might be familiar that they can grip onto but then something that challenges the audience as well and um and that and just gaining their trust through that um I've, I've just loved it I've loved every minute of it and um instead of being um a freelancer who's a gun for hire essentially I, I get to make artistic decisions and that's that is such a again a privilege it's really enjoyable and rewarding mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I relate. <laughs> and you know what, something that I am personally really proud of, and I'm sure you are too, is the fact that, you know, we are enriching the cultural life of this country. We're sort of embedding in the ecology more wonderful music. And we're also providing employment opportunities for our colleagues. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, it was very difficult to make a career as solely an early musician down, back here in Australia. Yes. But now it's totally possible. People like yourself, like Sky McIntosh, like Matthew Greco, with mm. all of these ensembles, with the Australian Haydn Ensemble and the Mufat um, Collective, myself with Bark Academy, yourself with uh, the Van Diemen's Band at Latitude and all of those wonderful groups. You know, there's just suddenly all these groups. And I think a lot of us spent our time in Europe and then came back and thought, we can do it here. And I feel that there's space in Australia. There's room here to do yeah. it whereas there's not so much room overseas anymore i i agree i think there's probably i think um in europe that they've reached a, a limit with the number of groups and um it's harder to to i guess it's harder to justify starting something new but here there, there was definitely the room and and you know state by state as well there's there's it's nice it's also nice to see things happening in WA and and um South Australia um so yeah there, there are for most freelancers there are enough groups for people to be busy in fact it's actually almost people can pick and choose which is quite luxurious <laughs> it's incredible what a great position to be in and it's it's all thanks to people like you so yeah it's it's absolutely fantastic um to have you here in Australia and especially what you're doing in Tasmania it just really really ties into what also is happening in Tasmania you know with the food and the wine and the festivals um, mm. everything is is of excellence isn't it everything is of such high quality it's quality, but it's boutique, and that's um, yes. I think what makes Tassie quite appealing at the moment because um, things have things keep. You know, it's funny how uh, the small, uh, high quality things have have a certain appeal over kind of mass production, I guess, and um, and that's yeah. I think that's what what's really helped Tassie along because you know Tassie yes. was never a very strong economy, but um, now it's become a real tourist um oh yeah haven, you know oh yeah absolutely. <laughs> it's become cool too because of Mona <laughs> it was always cool Julia it was it just people hadn't realized it yet <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely oh look 
Now, I just can't wait to perform this program with you. I cannot wait. I'm also just super excited about everything else on the program. Um, we're starting with this wonderful Gamba Sonata with the wonderful Laura Vaughan and yep. Neil Perez de Costa. And then we have the six-part Richica from the musical offering, which is a six-part conversation between equal voices. Mm. And then we have the Brandenburg Six Concerto, which is just fabulous. Then yeah. we have... We have, well, I shall be attempting the G minor adagio and fugue to yeah. demonstrate basically rhetoric on one instrument. I mean, we have a four-part fugue on one instrument. It's, it's extraordinary. extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely insane, imaginative, beautiful, emotive writing. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, to finish with, the Bach double, which I cannot wait to perform with you. Yeah, I'm so, looking forward to it too. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be absolutely wonderful. And uh, for those of you out there who haven't been to Tasmania, Get on a flight now that we can. <laughs> Go and drink some beautiful Pinot Noir. See some <laughs> fantastic art and hear the Van Diemen's band. Hear this wonderful Australian violin player, Julia Fredersdorf. But first, come and hear us in Sydney. <laughs> yes. Priorities. <laughs> That's right. Priorities, people. Um, thank you so much, Julia. It's just a joy to speak to you. And, yes, we'll see you very soon up here for some Looking wonderful Bach. Yeah, great. Thanks, Maddie. I really hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. Now, to find out more about Bach Academy Australia, make sure you visit our website, which is www.bachacademyaustralia.com.au. Make sure you spell Academy the German way as well, spelt A-K-A-D-E-M-I-E, -E, staying true to our German roots, of course. On our website, you can find out the details of all our upcoming performances near you, and you can subscribe to our e-newsletter. Also, you can find Bach Academy Australia on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. But make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. Mm -hmm.